This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 215th episode of Awards Channel, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by Showtime. Academy Award nominee Benedict Cumberbatch stars in the new Showtime limited event series, Patrick Melrose. In this tour de force performance, Cumberbatch brings to life the story of one man's journey toward redemption and survival. Patrick Melrose premieres May 12th only on Showtime. My guest today is a writer, actress, and producer who is about as hot as anyone in Hollywood at the moment. Over the past year, she became the first black woman ever to be nominated for and to win the Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series in recognition of the Thanksgiving episode of Netflix's Master of None, which she co-wrote with Aziz Ansari, alongside whom she also stars on that acclaimed comedy series. She starred in Steven Spielberg's sci-fi action-adventure film Ready Player One, she propelled into existence as the creator and executive producer and one of the writers, Showtime's The Shy, a drama series about 21st century life and death in a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, which debuted last December 15th online and this January 7th on TV, and which was quickly renewed for a second season. She wrote another pilot, 20s, which was picked up by TBS. She appeared on the cover of the first Radhika Jones overseen issue of Vanity Fair, and just this month, she was named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. I'm talking about the trailblazing and unstoppable Lena Waithe. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our digital media editor, Natalie Jarvie, who wrote the excellent cover story of this week's issue of THR, which looks at the rise of Hulu, the streaming service best known as the place where you can watch the show that won last year's Emmy for Best Drama Series and will strongly contend for it again this season, The Handmaid's Tale. This season, Hulu also has The Looming Tower, a look at the intelligence failures that preceded the attacks of September 11, 2001, which is a top contender for the Best Limited Series Emmy. Natalie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, and congratulations on this cover story. It's terrific. I think before we get to some of the more serious stuff that it covers, let me ask you just kind of a, about a fun fact that I learned from your piece. What does the word Hulu actually mean? Yes. So the word Hulu, according to the founding CEO, Jason Kylar, means holder of precious things in Mandarin, which is a fitting name since Hulu is holding all of the precious content that its big media owners sell to it. That's so. right. Well, so Hulu's been around since 2007. How did it get started? And why does it have so many strange bedfellows running it? We've got 
Comcast, 21st Century Fox, Disney, Time Warner, all of whom are normally competing against each other. Yeah, Hulu's history is really interesting. Back in 2007, News Corp and NBC Universal, the owners of NBC and Fox, teamed up and basically said, we need to come up with a solution to compete with YouTube. It's hard to believe now, but in 2007, YouTube had just been acquired by Google. It was still a pretty small company, but it had big implications. And a lot of these big media companies were starting to see clips of their shows show up there, run for free. They weren't making any money off of it. They figured Hulu would be a great place to be able to actually license their content and make money from the ads. And over the years, Disney joined. Disney at first didn't think it seemed like a very good idea. It was very (laughs) disorganized in the early days. So disorganized, in fact, that before it got the name Hulu, a bunch of people inside Google called it Clown Co. (laughs) So, you know, eventually Disney joined. And then a couple years ago, Time Warner took a piece. And so now you've got the owners of NBC, Fox, and ABC own 30% of the company, mm-hmm. and Time Warner owns 10% of the company. So how do any decisions get made, let alone shows, when so many people with so many different interests are in the kitchen? Yeah, it, it makes it a challenging place to to make decisions, really. That's something that is regularly brought up when you talk to folks in Hollywood about working with Hulu, something that gets brought up with people who currently work there, who formerly work there. So one thing that's worth noting is that NBC doesn't actually have any executives on the board currently. They had to give up those seats as part of their acquisition by Comcast in 2011. So right now it's Disney and Fox executives on the board. They've managed to play pretty nice over the last few years. Things kind of turned around. They tried to sell the company back in 2013 and ultimately opted not to. And things have been running a little smoother since then. It's helped that they've brought in a CEO. They've had a couple different CEOs in the last few years, but both of them have come from Fox. So these are guys who know the board members. They have relationships there. They know what it's like to work at a big media organization. And that has helped. But Definitely, any major investment has to get approved by the board. So, you know, a really big series green light will have to get run up through that process. And that takes longer than, you know, Apple, which is buying shows in the room right right now. And you've said that in your piece, the seven person board of directors currently includes some pretty heavy hitters. You got Fox's Peter Rice. Disney, ABC's Ben Sherwood, and Fox's Dana Walden, among others. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you about how the attempted, still-in-progress acquisition of Fox by Disney may affect things. But first, let's talk about the thing that really put Hulu on the map for a lot of people in the last year or so, and that was the rise of Handmaid's Tale. How did it land at Hulu in the first place when Hulu was not really a hot place to be? I think it was really only known for the path, maybe the revival of the Mindy Project, and to some extent, casual and 11-22-63. If anything, those are the things it would have been known for maybe. But you know, when that's all it had going for it and its track record, and also when so many other places had bigger pockets, how do they get such a good show? This is one of the things that fascinated me the most as I started working on this story. Because with hindsight, it's really easy to look at The Handmaid's Tale and say, well, of course that makes sense that that would be a huge hit. But when Hulu first picked this up, this was pre-2016 election. And there was a script that had been floating around. Showtime had had the rights to it and then eventually passed. And 
MGM, the studio with the rights to The Handmaid's Tale, was kind of out shopping the script. It was written by Eileen Chaikin, who now is involved with Fox's Empire. And Hulu saw an opportunity there. At the time, Hulu wasn't going to be out there competing against Netflix and HBO for some big, buzzy projects. But they saw this script and this property and said, we could maybe do something with this. And so they offered a straight-to-series order contingent on talent. By this point, because Eileen Shaken was off working on Empire, they brought in a guy named Bruce Miller to rewrite the script. The scripts they got back, they were like, wow, this is really good. And they started to go out to talent, and they identified Elizabeth Moss. And she was just fresh off of, of Mad Men and currently shooting Top of the Lake 2 in Australia. She did not need to be getting involved in another you know, time-intensive mm-hmm. series, but she liked the script, and eventually they, they came to an agreement. They got her on board, and that's how Hulu got its straight-to-series order. And Warren Littlefield, who was the guy who ran NBC during the must-see mm-hmm. TV years, he was the closer, right? He was the closer. Right. He came in. He talked with Elizabeth. He kind of convinced her to do it. They decided kind of together, we'll do this. It's worth it. And it may have just been a nice, critically acclaimed little show if it wasn't for the election and Donald Trump becoming president. And Hulu smartly recognized that they had an opportunity on their hands. They knew they had a great show, and they knew that suddenly a lot of people were talking about women's rights and these issues that you know maybe hadn't been kind of as present previously. So they really upped the marketing budget. They did a big Super Bowl spot. Well, yeah, and... talk about that because they really that was a big spend for them, and then they had a sort of fortuitous thing happen also. Yeah, well, so it's it's funny. I mean. There's never been an overtime game in the history of the Super Bowl until two years ago. But when you're buying Super Bowl spots, you have the option of paying a little bit more money and getting this contingency that if there is an overtime quarter, then your spot will run again during that period. It's never happened before. Why would it have ever happened again? But two years ago, it did with a historic Super Bowl game. And so the Handmaid's Tale spot actually ran twice, made Hulu look incredibly good and certainly made it look like they were really, you know, committed to the show, which they were. And that was a huge piece of kind of getting the word out there about the project. And then there was just, I remember this organic visibility for the show where you would have, as you mentioned, after the election of Trump and through the inauguration and just even unrelated things that where people were protesting, people started showing up in the Handmaid's outfits. And now Hulu has people show up in the Handmaid's outfits at their various events for Handmaid's Tale. But this was happening where people were basically making their own Handmaid's outfits. Well, Hulu kicked it off. They went to South by Southwest last year and brought a bunch of actresses dressed up as Handmaid's. And they would just, I was at South by, I saw this happen. They didn't tell anyone this was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see these, you know, lines of women walking in these long red dresses. They didn't say anything. They looked really somber. And it was, it made a statement. And then they did that again ahead of the premiere. And so that kind of sparked this kind of interest and then a bunch of women's rights activists started to dress up like handmaids at various protests. So Amazon and Netflix both have much deeper pockets than Hulu. Last year, Netflix spent around $6 billion on programming. Amazon, 4.5. Hulu spent just $2.5 billion. This is all in your piece. Netflix and Amazon also release many more shows than Hulu. Last year, Netflix had 30 new shows. Hulu, just eight. And yet at the Emmys last year, Hulu, with Handmaids, became the first streaming service ever to claim a series Emmy when Handmaids won Best Drama Series. How do you think this news was processed at Amazon, at Netflix, and at Hulu? 
Uh, well, I'm sure that at Netflix and Amazon it was not processed well. <laughs> they have both, you know, committed heavily and and made awards a really important part of their strategy. Now, it's important to note that Netflix still wins a ton of mm-hmm. Emmy awards. They just have never gotten that elusive best drama. So, you know, that's worth noting. But I mean, it was a huge deal for Hulu. I I went to their Emmy after party last year. You could tell they were having a great mm-hmm. night. Their head of originals Beatrice Springborn told me that she almost passed out in the in the room when the award was announced because she was just so excited and mm-hmm. could not believe that it had happened. So, you know, they certainly took advantage of the moment and and had a really great night. And that was one of ten awards that they won. Yeah, they also won for best actress mm-hmm. and Anne Dowd for supporting actress in drama. But now is actually a very interesting moment for Hulu, not only because of the fact that Handmaids has gone over so well and and season two is now out and and also going over well but as we referenced earlier disney is now in the process of acquiring most of 21st century fox for 52 billion dollars that includes fox's 30 percent stake in hulu which would give disney a 60 percent majority share which would leave comcast nbc's owner with 30 percent and time warner which is obviously behind cnn and hbo and tbs and tnt and so many others with 10 percent how if this acquisition goes through might this impact things at Hulu? We know Disney really wants a streaming presence, right? Yeah, this is the big question right now. If and when this deal goes through next year, Disney will become the majority owner of Hulu. So they'll be able to have a lot more control over the direction that Hulu takes. But it's important to note that because NBC was a founding partner in Hulu, they have a certain amount of rights. They can block kind of fundamental changes to the Hulu business. And that becomes even more important because starting in September this year, Cast and NBC are, are getting board seats again. That kind of regulatory restriction that they had back in 2011 is expiring, and they'll be able to be a lot more active in the management of Hulu. So that potentially could create some friction. You've got Disney majority owning the company, Comcast with a sizable stake and probably not willing to let Disney just have their way with Hulu in terms of what they do with that brand. And that's going to create some tension. And we'll have to see how that plays out. Everything that Disney has said is that their goal for Hulu, if they get majority ownership, is to make it kind of the third piece of a, of a streaming triangle that also includes ESPN Plus and a Disney-branded family-friendly service that will come out next year. So you'll imagine sports will be ESPN Plus. All the you know Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm content will be the Disney service. And then everything else, all the kind of more adult television fare will go to Hulu. And that's how they would operate those three. I think in your piece, you suggested that Disney might actually, another potential course here might be for Disney to sell its stake in Hulu to Comcast and just get out of it. And then why not start their own thing where they don't have to share the decision making with anyone else? How likely an outcome is that? A lot of smart people, analysts, executives at some of these companies believe that there's not really a future in which Disney and Comcast will be the two primary shareholders of Hulu. That structure worked when there were three companies, Disney, Fox, and Comcast. It's harder when it's just two rivals. So most likely... Comcast is going to have to sell its stake to Disney or Disney is going to have to sell its stake to Comcast. Now, Disney is not saying that they want to sell it. They've explicitly said that Hulu is important to their streaming strategy. 
But you have to imagine that there's a scenario in which Comcast makes it very attractive to Disney to sell. And it's hard to know exactly what that looks like. Hulu is valued at around $8 billion now. So, I mean, it's a... It's a sizable venture. And if Comcast comes in with the right price, Disney might decide to do that. Now, there's a lot of other stuff mucking this up. There's Comcast's bid for Sky, which Disney also wants to own through its Fox deal. There's a lot of moves that could get made. And and I could almost envision a scenario in which maybe, you know, there's a a gentleman's agreement where Comcast backs off on Sky if Mm -hmm. Disney in exchange sells Hulu to Comcast. So who knows how it'll all play out. Interesting. Well, Let's just look at, in terms of programming and strategy, where, assuming that the current management remains in place and the current situation moves forward for a little while, how things might go at Hulu. I was at the season one premiere of The Path back in 2016. That took place in one of the theaters at the Arclight. I was happy to be there. It was a nice event or whatever, but I mean, that was a pretty understated thing. Can you just share, first of all, what the season two premiere of Handmaid's Tale looked like about a week ago. Hulu made a statement with that premiere. Absolutely. They held it at the Chinese theater. So historic Mm -hmm. theater has hosted very few streaming service premieres over the years. First for Hulu, I believe Arrested Development premiered there for Netflix a few years ago. They had a line of handmaids standing alongside the (laughs) red carpet. There were screaming fans on both sides of Hollywood Boulevard. And it was a really kind of important night for Hulu to show the world, show their fans, show their talent that they mean business. After everyone exited the theater, they, in a, you know, just a matter of, you know, 45 minutes or so had torn down all the red carpet and in its place put these handmaid's dresses that were made to look like they were burning, kind of a <laughs> symbol of resistance that's going to show up a lot in the second season. So they really made a splash. But they are not without issues, right? I mean, why just a month after Handmaids won this historic Emmy did their chief depart to go run Sony Pictures TV? And then also, we can't ignore the fact that they did lose, according to your article, $920 million last year. So what do we make of those facts? Well, to grow a business, you have to invest. And so a lot of those losses, and and those losses are estimates based on what the owners of Hulu report in their quarterly earnings. You know, certainly in order to have a multi-million dollar marketing campaign for The Handmaid's Tale and to invest in premium programming, you've got to spend a lot of money. And that's what is happening there. You also had Hulu last year launched a live TV service. And that is not a cheap thing to do. They had to, you know, have the, the technology capabilities to operate a service like that, but then also go out and strike all of those deals with all of the networks that they wanted to carry on that service. And that's actually where the departure of their last CEO comes into play. You know, listen, at first, I think it's not easy to run a company when you're reporting to the board that we already laid out. My understanding is that Mike Hopkins, the former CEO, was wanting to to make an international push. He thought that that would be an important way to compete with Netflix and Amazon. And the board really pushed for a live TV service, in part because while it would be a big investment, it also helps them because Hulu is then having to license their networks. The NBC network has to get licensed onto this platform. The Fox network has to get licensed onto this platform. So it's a good way for the owners to make some of their money money back. And so it's my understanding that that was a cause of friction between Hopkins and the board and was part of what led to That's him interesting. taking off. Well, and just to note with regard to the international question that, that we were just 
talking about here. Netflix, your piece notes, has 55 million U.S. subscribers. Hulu has is coming up on 20 million. But Netflix also has another 70 million subscribers around the world. And Amazon Prime has 100 million worldwide. So we're looking at Netflix, 125 million worldwide. Amazon Prime, 100 million subscribers worldwide. But Hulu is still just a U.S.-based thing. So I guess... Is that likely to change or are we going to have to wait out and see if because now the live TV is the priority, that's not likely to happen in the near future? Yeah. So I, I know that they made a couple of goes at taking Hulu International in the past. They did actually have Hulu Japan for a while, but they sold that a couple years ago. And although it's still called Hulu Japan, they're not involved in that business anymore. The challenge is that in the last couple of years, Netflix and Amazon have pretty much licensed up the global rights to every single major TV show. In fact, Netflix is now striking deals to help TV shows get made in the U.S. by coming in as the international distributor. They did that on Riverdale, where that airs in the U.S. on the CW, but everywhere else in the world, it's considered a Netflix show. Wow. So that's going to make it hard for Hulu because they don't have those rights. When they go out and they do a deal, they do a deal just for the domestic rights to The Handmaid's Tale or, you know, for some of the back catalog stuff they have. They have just the domestic rights for ER. So they would have to go back and renegotiate all of those deals. But there's a chance that those rights have have already been licensed to other players and that that would be a really monumental task. So instead... They probably do need to go international if they really want to compete. And their CEO, Randy Freer, admitted as much that that probably what makes the most sense would be some sort of a partnership. Now, he didn't go into specifics about what exactly that would mean. But I have to imagine that after the Disney-Fox deal is closed, especially if Disney gets ownership of, of Sky, which is a UK distributor, that there's some interesting opportunities to make some partnerships and find ways to maybe kind of co-brand Hulu in other countries. So we'll have to look and see if that's kind of how that shakes out in, in a year or so. Yeah. Well, the last question I'll ask you is just if you know, you can preview some of the programming that Hulu does have already in the pipeline. We know that we're going to see an ongoing run of Handmaids. In September, we're seeing the return of Sarah Silverman's talk show, I Love You, America. But beyond that, you know, they've just canceled the path again. That's after three seasons. But they are going to replace it or instead offer quite a few high profile projects in the near future. Yeah, they've really kind of used The Handmaid's Tale, I think, as kind of a defining moment for what Hulu programming can be. So a couple of their most recent pickups are a George Clooney adaptation of Catch-22 and also a Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington adaptation of the recent bestseller Little Fires Everywhere. So those are both interesting projects, also based on book IP. So it seems like Hulu's maybe kind of found an interesting niche there. In addition to that, they've got Castle Rock coming out this summer, which is J.J. Abrams and Stephen King. It's kind of set in the world of Stephen King, and that will be kind of a big genre play for them. And we exclusively reported in our story that Hulu is nearing a deal with Mindy Kaling to adapt the Hugh Grant movie Four Weddings and a Funeral. Into an anthology type thing. Yeah, a TV comedy, which could be really fun. Well, interestingly, Bo Willeman, the guy who, in a lot of ways, put Netflix on the map with House of Cards, is now over at Hulu with The First, which is something involving Sean Penn. Yeah, a drama set on Mars (laughs) starring Sean Penn. So it worked for Netflix. Let's see what he can bring to Hulu. And that's a great overview of a complicated situation, but something everybody, I guess, probably should know about because Hulu's not not going anywhere. So thank you, Natalie Jarvie. Thank you for having me. And now for my interview with Lena Waithe. 
Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 33-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. What it was like for her coming of age on the south side of Chicago as a black woman still coming to terms with the fact that she was a lesbian. What made her want to become, from the age of just seven, a writer for television? And how a series of fateful twists and turns involving her schooling and a variety of mentors helped that dream to become a reality. How she wound up on Master of None, not as a writer, but instead, for the first time in her life, as an actor. And how she still wound up getting the opportunity to co-write with Ansari the landmark Thanksgiving episode, which was largely based on her own experience coming out of the closet. How her life has been impacted by her Emmy win for that episode, her Spielberg collaboration that followed, and all of the other big things that have happened for her recently, and how it hasn't. The Shy was already in motion back in 2014, even before she had anything to do with Master of None. What motivated her, someone who had exclusively worked in the world of comedy until The Shy, to create that show, a drama series with characters named after people in her own life and set in the area in which she grew up, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right, Lena, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, I guess just to share with our listeners, you say you're literally coming from the beginning of the season two process. <laughs> yeah, well, the writer's room has been up for, I think this is our third week. So it's still new. It's still early. We got a brand new showrunner who's dope. Mm-hmm. Her name is Ayanna Floyd Davis, and she's a vet. She's been in the game for a super long time. And, you know, it's just an amazing thing. It's like, you know, I'm a part of the Time's Up movement and I'm happy that I get to be someone who I had an opportunity to put a woman of color in a position of power on the show and but then also not only that I think she's just you know really good at what she does and she's fantastic and we've already seen a difference in the room having her sitting at the the table. That's cool well we'll work our way back to shy in a moment but we always begin here just where were you born and raised what did your folks do for a living well i was born and raised in chicago the south side of chicago to be exact and here's the funny thing i always said if james lipton ever asked me this question (laughs) inside the actor studio i wouldn't have a good answer because my mom always had a bunch of different jobs a lot of which i don't know or understand and can't explain and my dad wasn't super present so i didn't really know like what he did for a living so I don't know it sounds like my parents aren't like involved in illegal activity but I swear that's not the case as far as we know I just they it's like they didn't have well my dad I just didn't know what he did because he wasn't in my life like that but my mom like she just would always change jobs and she's like changed careers a bunch of different times so I, I couldn't say oh she's a teacher right, or an engineer right. like it just it wasn't that kind of party she was always trying to figure out what ways to make the ends meet and we lived with my grandmother for some, from when I was 2 to 12 mm-hmm. so I lived in my grandmother's house for 10 years and my grandmother you know she did help my aunt my aunt my mom's sister cleans houses. She mm-hmm. still does. She's in her own business, and my grandmother would help her with that. So that I know. But other than that, well, kind of in the dark. it seems like one of the upsides of having a single parent home with the grandmother for a chunk of that is that it's not, what do they call it, like helicopter parents where they're just right. on top of you. No. So th- that was not the case, not which means all. you could get into television or other things. Other right? stuff. You know, I mean, I got into a lot of things, I think. And also we loved, you know, we were, because my grandmother loved watching television. And she also was, she was retired. So mm-hmm. she spent a lot of time at home. So we had HBO, we had Showtime, we had all those channels. So we would always watch movies we weren't supposed to be watching and see things maybe we weren't supposed to see. 
but it really kind of made it so I, I had an old soul at a very young age, I think. What were some of the shows that either your mom was into or your grandmother was into that they got you into or that you independently got into? What well, were... I was really lucky to come up during in the 90s, even though some of these shows started in the 80s, but, you know, I spent my childhood during, I feel, it's so funny because there's a lot of golden ages of television, but I do feel like, I mean, the Carsey Warner, you know, era, you know, with the Cosby show in, in a different world and Roseanne. So I got a chance to watch those like classic sitcoms, but also, you know, Golden Girls was still on, Designing Women. My grandmother liked old TV shows, so she would want to watch the Jeffersons and like Good Times and All in the Family, which I really took to a lot. I also really liked this show called 227, which was really cool. Marla Gibbs was the lead of that. And it was just really, it just, that show really reminded me of home because I, you know, grew up around elderly black women and where my neighborhood felt more like a family than right. uh, the neighborhood. And so I could relate to that show a lot. And also I used to watch Family Matters and Full House and Step by Step and all that kind of stuff. So there was, so the sitcom was like really big when I was growing up. And I think that definitely helped me define my voice and I'm never afraid of a hard joke. But I think, you know, I always knew I wanted to get into comedy, but there was an interesting thing that happened for me when I was in college, the single camera comedy emerged and then it all changed. Right. And I think 30 Rock was very influential in my life and, and just and just Tina Fey and for a lot of us, the way she decided to approach comedy and, and obviously Donald Glover is obviously very much influenced mm-hmm. by not only her, but his experience working with her on 30 Rock and, and then I'm obviously going to work on community, being on the show and probably having some say on things he said and that obviously led to, you know, fast forward me on something like Master of right, None and right. I'm a writer, but also, you know, performing and finding my voice. And so comedy, definitely the tone of it, the volume of it changed. I really feel like with 30 Rock and the office and, and, and Parks and Recreation. So everything I knew coming up kind of shifted, but I'm still very much influenced by those classic yeah. sitcoms and those, those memorable characters. So what was it, though, that makes a seven year old in the middle of the country say, I want to be not just consume TV, which Mm. is what most of us were happy to do, but Mm. to actually be on the other side of it. Well, it's interesting because I don't come from a showbiz family at all, Mm -hmm. but I think it became quite clear that when I was watching TV as a young person, it was more than just a pastime. It was more than just a hobby. I think I really became obsessed with these characters, with these worlds and these voices and the names and the credits and all that kind of stuff, who I would then later on go on to meet a lot of these people and work with them and for them. Right. So, yeah, I think television just meant a lot to me. And even though I was a tomboy and I would play outside and play with the boys and stuff like that. But for the most part, I was always most comfortable in front of the TV set. And also, I would just get super excited if something was coming on. There was right. event television. Right. I was always super hyped about that kind of stuff. And then also, it sounds like from what I've been able to gather, like, you know, pretty early on, reading not kids stuff and then obviously writing yourself. How did that all kind of enter the picture as well? Well, I think... I really started to take the writing part of it a little bit more seriously when I got into college Mm -hmm. because I studied writing and producing and television at Columbia College Mm -hmm. in Chicago. But I think really as a kid, I watched TV a ton, read a lot, was always fascinated by words on the page and but also fascinated by characters on the, on my TV screen. So I sort of really combined the two and and really started taking it really seriously when I graduated from school. And it sounds like if there was a kind of big turning point in the early years of your life was it maybe at 12 when up to that point you'd been raised as you said like solely in on the south side of Chicago uh-huh. and now what happens that leads you to 
head to the suburbs, essentially. Well, yeah, I think for my mom would probably be the public school system. Although we were in a sort of a magnet school when I was living on the South Side and go to the school sort of assigned to me, mm-hmm. so to speak. But when I was 12, my sister was like 14. I think my mom realized she, you know, wanted to save up and get her own place. And she bought, she went in with a family member of ours, a brownstone in Evanston, solely for the fact that it was like the school system was yeah. really great. And so I went to junior high in Evanston. I went to Evanston Township High School, graduated from there, which I think was very instrumental in my life and the person that I am now. And, and that's, I think, the thing that really led me to want to go to Columbia College, just because I wasn't ready to leave Chicago just yet, too. Right. And I guess in going from Southside to Evanston, obviously, like you're saying, the the main allure, I guess, would be the school system. Mm-hmm. But did you feel or do you think your mother felt like we can get out of here or was because I'm wondering when, when I look at the shy, for instance, mm-hmm. there's obviously wonderful aspects of it that we sure. see where the community's close. And I love that whole block party aspect mm-hmm. of it and all right. that. But obviously there's some downsides as well. And so for you, how did you experience in those first 12 years, the South Side? I mean, it was wonderful. It wasn't a situation where I was like, oh, we got to get out. Like we weren't, it wasn't. Also to our neighborhood, our pocket neighborhood, as I like to call it, mm-hmm. was not super violent. Like, you know, you wouldn't hear like gunshots. You wouldn't hear sirens all the time. Now there are areas on the South Side that maybe you did, mm-hmm. but in our neighborhood, it was very it was very much a community and the people that had been living there have been living there for 20 years and there were a lot of three generation homes on that block and so I literally got to grow up with the children of the children my mom played with as a kid oh, which wow. I thought was really fun I grew up in the house that my mom grew up in wow. so it was it was really great for that you know in terms of that but also too and it wasn't this huge culture shock because you know Evanston isn't Skokie so <laughs> it was still very diverse right. and it was really nice I think to be around kids, not just from different ethnic backgrounds, but from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so I think it really was a training ground for Hollywood for me, because even though people assume Los Angeles is just full of like white people, but the truth <laughs> is, it's really a, just as much of a melting pot, I think, as New York, because yeah. people literally come here from all over the world to pursue a very similar dream. That's what I think L.A. is so amazing and special is that you can meet a person from India. You can meet a person from Timbuktu and one of them wants to be a director, one of them wants to be a writer. <laughs> right. This cat from, you know, Tappahannock, Mississippi wants to be an actor. And so that's the thing. It's like you all grew up with the same dream, right. you know, of wanting to be in the business. And some of you will make it, some of you won't. But, you know, it's a really exciting feeling. And yeah. I think that's, to me, what was so great about moving to Evanston was that I got to meet different kind of people and experience a different kind of space. Because the truth is, most of my world was predominantly African-American. Not that there's anything wrong with that growing up, but it was nice to kind of be thrown into a world and a space where everybody didn't look like me. And you felt comfortable, accepted, all of those things when you went there? Yeah, Yeah, no, I didn't have any issues in in that space. And I think the biggest reason is because the school was so diverse. It wasn't like, oh, there's two black kids, you know, (laughs) it was like, no, there's a a pocket of black kids, a pocket of Latino kids, a pocket of like white kids, a pocket of, you know, Asian kids. I mean, there was just everything. And we were not I mean, I guess somebody could say if you came to the lunchroom, were we a little bit segregated? Maybe. But then once we all fed into that big old high school, you know, we just kind of all vibed and bonded. And it was a really wonderful experience for me. I didn't I, I'm very blessed that I didn't grow up with that thing of, you know, I was super picked on right, or whatever. Right. I mean, I had my stuff. I was definitely very much a tomboy. And, you know, I wasn't always the coolest kid, mm-hmm. but I definitely had my own little swag. I definitely had a personality. I wasn't like this awkward kid who only like stayed in the basement and watched TV. I had this very interesting personality where I was a super, 
you know, movie geek and TV nerd, but I was very accessible to people. Like I wasn't, I, I didn't feel, but also because my mom is a bit of a social butterfly, I got that from her as well. So I could walk into a room, take the temperature and, and know how to adapt. So going through junior high, high school, all that, was it sort of expected of you that you would go to college? Oh yeah, particularly at, at Evanston Township. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's what was so unique about it. And I don't know if there's many public schools in the city that, you know, just assume, oh, so you're gonna go to college. This this was, they were like, okay, so yeah, where are your college applications? It was, <laughs> it was definitely expected. And when you were looking at what those next four years would entail, how much did your idea of what your future would be evolve during those four years at, at Columbia? I think the biggest evolution came when one of my professors really drove home the point of me doing something called the semester in L.A., which Columbia College has, where you literally can, if you have all your credits up to date and you pay for a certain amount of classes, you can qualify to be one of the people they send to Los Angeles for. It, that's the funny thing, because it's, it's just a semester. So you can make it your last semester and then spend the rest of your year in Los Angeles and come back and graduate, which is what I opted to do because mm-hmm. a friend of mine, a classmate at Columbia had done it like the semester prior to her last one. And she said, it's such a waste of an opportunity because you go out there, you meet people, you make connections and I have to come back to Chicago and do another right. semester and graduate. So I remember her advice. She said, if you do it, do it your last semester because in that way you can stay out there. You can continue to build on the relationships that you that you have and, and try to turn into some, some gigs. And I remember some girl, I wish I could remember her name, but some white chick <laughs> came in and spoke to us and she had just done it. And she looked like she had won the lottery. Like she was like, yeah, I'm a, and she probably had some shitty, like she probably was like a, a office PA on some show, but I was like, "What?" I was like, "You're an office PA on a show? That's amazing! Like, how do I get that?" And it just really—they just convinced me because I was a little gun shy about moving yeah. to Los Angeles. But I don't know why. I mean, that was well, really did naive. You know anybody out here? No, I didn't. That's I a didn't. Good and I mean, but I look back on it now, like how naive must I have been to think, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to like try to write television in Chicago." <laughs> but yeah, I think it was that. It was hearing a lot of my professors and just a lot of them really believing in me and pushing me, saying like, "You have something. You have a voice. You should go." And they were saying that when I was a senior in college. And so that meant a lot to me. Like one professor in particular, Mike Fry, who I love and still communicate I was just with. Ask you about him. Yeah, he's so dope. He I remember he was like a king does because like he had actually written on television. He had written on the Freshman's Bel Air. He had interned on the Cosby show. Like we were like he he wrote on this show called The Parenthood. It was not the NBC one, right. but the one from Warner from WB night with Robert Townsend and that whole thing. And so he was legit. And he also was a bit of a cautionary tale because he definitely was never afraid to tell us, like, yo, I was out in LA living the life. I, he literally told us he lived in a building with a jacuzzi on the roof and he had like a drop top red convertible and, you know because again if you think about it like the money they were making when you writing on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air like that's major days. network yeah. sitcom hot ticket show yeah. he was making crazy money and and now he's sitting with us in, in a classroom in Chicago teaching us how to write TV and he definitely told us like you know don't make the same mistakes that I did don't think this shit never dries up he's like you gotta be really smart about the moves you make and things like that and the crazy thing is like and he and I obviously still have a really great relationship but he'll send me scripts to give him notes on now it's so nuts Amazing. but you know I think but that also I think speaks to the community of Columbia College and it's like how it's more than a school you know you're not just going there for a degree like yeah, you know, you're going there to really chase your dream, right. and, and they really support that. So to reference something that we're going to, again, come to more in a little bit, but we've all seen the Thanksgiving episode of Master of None that you co-wrote, the one you won your Emmy for. And I was reading about it, and it sounds like the general impression from interviews and things that have happened in the past was that Denise's experience, the character that you play, her experience was not dissimilar 
from yours as far as kind of the evolution of recognizing mm-hmm. to yourself your your own sexuality, you know, then sharing that with family and friends, the hurdles that come with that, all mm-hmm. of all of that. So I guess is that correct that that was largely you know representative of what you went through, and just also how did that discovery affect your own life as I, I don't know when exactly you came out or, mm. or what, but just how that affected your life. Well, the episode is a very thinly veiled version of my own coming out. And, you know, I'm really grateful to Aziz and Alan for telling me to even write an episode about it because I literally told those guys my coming out story in passing because Alan just happened to ask, oh, how'd you come out? And I, I told them and we were hanging out in New York and I went back to my hotel and they both called me and said, we have to we have to make an episode out of that. And I thought, really? I'm like, I don't even know if it's that entertaining or that interesting. And also I never set out to go, oh, one day I'm going to tell this story. Right. I just, I don't know. I, maybe because it's mine and, and I didn't think much of it. And I, I, was, I was so distant from that point in my life. But we had a bunch of conversations about it and I totally, I felt completely comfortable you know, telling the story. And Anise came up with the idea to, to tell it over a course of th- a series of Thanksgivings, which I thought was a really nice benchmark just mm-hmm. because there was a lot of story to cover. And the big thing I told Aziz was, I was like, I can't tell this story in just a simple, you know, ABC kind of way. And, and he not only appreciated that, but he really embraced it. And, and we had fun with the with going back in time and yeah. figuring out how these guys became friends, which obviously was the fictitious part of it. But everything else with the mom and the aunts and the, you know, the grandmother who's Lucy based on my my, my maternal grandmother who has since passed away. And, you know, the, the nipples and toes based on the actual girl I dated up until Michelle, who's Lucy based on my fiance, Alana. So I w- I'm never afraid to put my stuff out there on the page. It's so mm-hmm. funny. I was just in the writer's room having a conversation about Atlanta and a writer was asking me about, you know, a conversation, a very a relationship conversation that Ern has with his uh, the mother of his child. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, just kind of I didn't know, you know, how to receive that. It kind of felt like I don't know what, what to make of that conversation. And I said, you know, look, but that's the thing I feel like with this generation is that I said there's no way that Donald could have written. They could have written that without something similar like that, that conversation having happened. And I said, but that's what I love about this new wave of television is that there's no hiding. There's no, let's make this pretty. And when you do see something that's pretty and glossy, it becomes forgettable the second it's off or rather you know something like the teddy p episode which is phenomenal or people i feel very grateful that they say that about master of none and i think if anything i think it's bigger than me i think i just sort of told the story that a lot of people in the queer community particularly people who are people of color in the queer community can relate to because there's another layer of coming out it's about being othered already and then adding on to that well i was gonna say i think on that episode if i remember but certainly in other interviews that that you've done that i read to prep you're you know it's basically like it's hard enough to be black Mm -hmm. now you add this on top of that and i mean do you feel like it in any way made the climb harder for you getting to this point no I, i don't i think it's interesting i always tell people i didn't realize how fucked up the business was until i got my own tv show that's when i really learned like oh shit people are really they can be kind of sexist and right. think they're colorblind and but they aren't so i just learned a lot season one of the shy about this business and people and hierarchy and and just but you know super quickly come season two people have really rectified you know what happened and people have been really great about you know, showing me support and love and, and now in this space. And I'm sure the Emmy didn't hurt, but, <laughs> you know, but I just really had to learn like, oh man, like you really have to show 
this business that you are a commodity in order to be treated with respect. Because mm-hmm. if you if you aren't making nobody any money, like nobody cares right. about you. And I think that's the hard pill that people are aware of and they can choose to swallow it or not. Right. But it's so funny because somebody said it to me. I can't remember who exactly, but somebody said like, until you make somebody some money, <laughs> you are the least powerful person at the table and nothing could be more correct. Because once the show came out, <laughs> like everybody was like, oh, let's, you know, let's protect let's Lena. Let's business. make sure she's yeah. great. You know, <laughs> but before that, it was very like, I don't know if people cared that much about my voice. But the great thing is like, you know, everybody's sort of like done about face, which is really it's nice. Worked out, yeah. So let's go back to 2006, which is, I guess, the same year, as you say, you graduate from college and end up out here. What was your life like when you first arrived out here during those first few years? And were you a happy camper or was it a a rough ride? I was happier than not, you know, just because I was like living in Los Angeles and like paying my dues. And I really enjoyed that part, even though it wasn't always fun. But I I was just happy to be in L.A. You know, I would do anything. I would be, you know, an intern. I'd dog sit. I'd house sit. (laughs) I'd do a bunch of different things. And I also remember walking around my I remember living in Van Nuys like when I first came out here like deep in the valley in a very shitty apartment and because obviously it was a very tight it was a studio apartment so I was like almost like a New Yorker the reason why New Yorkers are always out in the world is because their apartments are claustrophobic so (laughs) I would but I did this when I was in Chicago but I would always walk around with headphones on listening to music daydreaming about the life I wanted to have and I did that in Chicago a ton with my Walkman that's how throwback (laughs) I'll go and then when I got to LA I finally had an iPod and I would go walk around and like listen to songs and daydream about things and women and life and people and where I wanted to go and who I wanted to be and I really do attribute that and it's sort of it was almost sort of a form of prayer in a way of like this is what I hope to be doing you know this is where I am now I'm walking around the streets of Van Nuys with my earbuds in listening to who knows some 90s R&B like daydreaming about you know doing the things that I want to be doing and and now it's so funny because I don't walk around a ton anymore one because it's not easy to walk around and people will see me and want to stop and have a conversation but it's interesting when I still have a form of prayer but it's a little more internal now but but no I I mean I was an intern multiple times I remember working at a literary agency in Beverly Hills from nine to five every day and my only payment was they would pay for my lunch and then I would drive an hour to the valley because I was a, a, a transcriber for the real world so and I would do that from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. And I did that every day for like two months being like, oh, this will have to pay off at some point. I mean, that's just how I operated. I was just like and I would sleep on the weekends, obviously, (laughs) but I would just go, this is going to pay off. And I remember just like driving around, listening to the Dreamgirl soundtrack of Jennifer Hudson, like singing her top of her lungs. And I just go like, yep, this is going to we're going to figure this out. We're going to get there. So that's what for me. And I have a ton of mentees and people that work with me. And I just look at them and go. They can't complain to me because yeah. I've done it. Right. I've done I've done what they're doing and right. ten times more. And there was no situation set up the way I have right. for them. So right. I'm going like right. y'all are like two steps ahead. <laughs> but I think because I did that, I think that's why I'm so big on like mentorship and making sure I, I provide you know, just a space for them to get to know each other. That's the other thing, too, is about community. You know, I know I met Justin Simeon in a writer's group, you know. Well, actually, yeah. So I, I wonder if we can just touch on a few of these steps mm-hmm. that sure. and sort of, I don't know if you would call these people mentors, but just mm-hmm. early people you cross paths with. So mm-hmm. it sounds like the first person who was really kind of working in a major way in the business who you were now working with was Gina Prince, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I will give Mar Brockakil credit for yeah. bringing me to her because I was an assistant to the showrunners at Girlfriends in what would ultimately become their last season because the strike happened also while I was yeah. out here, which is also like, hello, reality. <laughs> but I was working for 
I was an assistant to three people. There was a writing team, Mark Brown and Dee Duke, who had been on the show since season. they actually were show running the show the first two seasons. They're literally like the real life Will and Grace. Like he's gay, <laughs> she's straight. They're amazing. They dated in college. And then Regina Hicks, who had been with the show from the beginning. And she did not have a writing partner. But the three of them were sort of like a writing trio. And I was their assistant. And I got that gig because the where I was interning at that agency that I mentioned where I was working from nine to five every day as an intern, they repped Mark and Dee. And so when they needed a new assistant, they told their agents, they said, oh, we got this receptionist who's dope. She should come and interview. So I went in and interviewed, got that gig. And then ultimately we wound up getting repped by that agency later. But anywho, so I know it's so crazy how things work. So so I went and interviewed, got the gig. And so that's why I say is to say that I wasn't even working for Mara directly, right. but she saw me from the corner of her eye just running around and being super energetic as I you know, still tend to right, be. Right. And I even would overhear her sometimes saying, who is that? Like, where did y'all find this girl? Because <laughs> Mara does appreciate somebody with a great work ethic. So cut to Gina Prince-Bythewood needed an assistant on for post during The Secret Life of Bees. And she asked Mara if she knew anybody. And Mara said, I know exactly the person. You should get this girl, Lena, who was the assistant to my showrunners over at Girlfriends. Went in, interviewed with Gina, got the gig, and it was really the beginning of a wonderful, long friendship, family, like I consider her to be, you know, yeah, she's family at this point. Yeah, yeah. And Reggie Bythewood became my mentor as well. And, and now Gina and I are just like buddies and we'll check in with each other. And I'm really honored to, to be friendly with them because they both wrote on a different world. I mean, at one point. So it's just wow, like all of this is like circle. very, yeah. you know, interconnected. And then Gina one day said, I've been working for her for a couple of years. And she said, hey, I have a friend who's directing that first movie and she needs a PA or an assistant. And that happened to be Ava DuVernay. <laughs> so it's just like nuts. And I, I, was, I was her PA slash assistant on I Will Follow which was her first narrative film. So yeah, so I sort of always say the most powerful black woman played hacky sack with me for a while in LA. <laughs> and it was just a great thing because I, I take pages from each of them. They all have different strengths and different ways they move through the business and the world. And and to me, the biggest testament to all of them is the fact that I'm still tight with them all. I mean, I just recently visited Ava's new buildings that she has for Array. And we I, I just went to go see and visit and, and write on the wall. And but we sat and had a wonderful long conversation about the business. And she always has great advice to, to dish out. Gene and I will check in. We, with each other now we, we've, we've become equals now and she will share war stories yeah. or she'll call me for advice which is always crazy or ask me to read you know some of her material so it's just a, it's a lovely full circle moment and so that's where you were and with both of those women you were kind of helping them out now was the first thing where you were entrusted to do something because of your like a major responsibility yourself would that have been bones or was that after dear white people well here's the, i got staffed my first staff writing gig was on a nickelodeon show actually called how to rock okay starring masterpiece daughter Symphonique Miller. Okay. Can't make this up. Yeah. And it's funny because I actually was paper teamed on that show and to no fault of, you know, the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Israel is super cool, but they, they wanted two diversity writers. And so they put us together and acted as if we were a writing team, even though we weren't, because I think the intentions were good to have more than one woman of color in the room. And we had to share an office. We just share a paycheck. It was really a big reality check of like, oh, this thing you've been wanting, you finally get it. And it's like not everything is cracked up to be. And I wasn't really strong in the writer's room. You can ask anyone there like I really fumbled I think in that room just because it's just not it wasn't my voice it was kid stuff mm-hmm. and I really do believe like kid shows are where young writers go to learn and older writers go to retire mm-hmm. so it's a very unique it's sort of like these old dogs and puppies in a right. room but it was also a really cool learning experience but then what happened was once I got staffed and I wasn't doing well at that I'm just a person that's like well what else can I be doing with my free time because I'm not good at this and yeah. so I started doing table reads for scripts so that way people could hear them out loud and possibly bid on them and then also that's when I started I went gung-ho and producing Dear White People and so after that luckily 
the show didn't come back because I probably wouldn't have been brought back and that would have been devastating even though if I I knew I wasn't good at it but I went and produced that movie and and that really gave me a lot of confidence well so that's a pretty big thing to be producing a movie for the first time right how did you even how did you cross paths with Justin and actually didn't he have the same trajectory as Ava where he had been in publicity and PR yeah yeah. well he was it's funny because Ava I think they had different paths I think Ava just went into publicity and thought probably thought she would do that for the rest of her career but then end up I think kind of got tired when she was on these movie sets I think she thought to herself I can do this let me try (laughs) let me try my hand at it Justin went to film school and he because I like to tease him and call him a genius boy Mm -hmm. he graduated and said I want to learn how to sell a movie so that way when I make one it doesn't just sort of lay there and I think that was really a smart thing because everything you saw a part of our marketing campaign for Dear White People even everything you see now for the the Netflix series is really his brainchild he's really good about coming up with campaigns and taglines and things like that and he'll cut like teaser trailers mm-hmm. and things like that so do white people really changed my life and really showed me that I could do anything because I literally said to him I said hey man I want to produce this movie because I he was trying to make it a TV show funny enough in our writers group right. you know I mean that's where I met those characters in, the, in that writers group and I was so like this the writers is phenomenal group means that it's just a not from the Nickelodeon show just generally group of just, friends of yeah, yours that were well because I was an assistant at girlfriends and across the hall there was the game and there was a white gay guy who was a writer's PA at the game and so he and I kind of were like, huh, let's, we should <laughs> talk to each other because you're gay, I'm gay, and also I'm like, this is weird that you're a white gay dude as a writer's PA <laughs> on the game. Right. And so he said, you know, we would IM each other throughout the day, and he said, look, I do this thing where I do writer's groups, and, you know, you should come. And I actually didn't even want to go because I just was, think was being lazy, and also you could tend to be a little isolated mm-hmm. in L.A. And what I went because I didn't want to seem like a flake, and that's and it literally changed my life. And I met Justin, and he, I think, was as enamored by me as I was by him, and we just became best friends, and we were off to the And when you're now going to produce for the first time, did you feel like you knew what you needed to do? No, I didn't know what I was doing. I just said, I just knew I wanted these characters he had created to be exposed to the world. And I said, I want to produce it. And he said, okay. And I think it was just more of my way of sort of being the flavor flavor of the producer team and just pushing him <laughs> off the cliff and saying, let's do it. And then, yeah. And then he decided to do a table read and he decided to do a concept trailer. And that's what really kind of got us off the ground. And people were talking about it. And next thing I know, I was going to Minneapolis to <laughs> produce my first film, which ultimately became a bit of a Sundance darling. Yeah. And he won the best first screenplay at the independent spirit awards and kind of changed all of our lives. I love that movie. Yeah. So after that, though when you've had now a pretty successful first film as a producer were you thinking I'm done being in a writer's room or you're gonna absolutely not no? I thought that was my way of saying I I think this should be happening so I'm gonna do it and then after that, I came back and we did this thing for 20s where we did a pilot presentation for that because I saw we had been so successful with the concept trailer for Dear White People. Obviously, Justin directed the pilot presentation and that did pretty well. And, and BET ended up buying that. Then ultimately, Hulu bought it and now we're at TBS. Just so people know, this is now the show that's still to come from you. Yeah, we're going to, and Justin's going to direct the pilot. You know, you stay close to those you love and, and you trust. So well, in it's July, amazing though, your order of this because if we, we'd have to like chart it out to show that, because I think the shy you were starting in on on tw- wrote, you wrote it in 2014 right, right I wrote the shy like right after I finished producing Dear White People so I've been this, home for a bit and wow. I was like okay I'm gonna write something new and that's what I decided to write because 20s I had it written already which really was my signature script I was going around getting meetings off mm-hmm. of it people really liked it because obviously it was a sort of autobiographical story about me and my life living mm-hmm. in Los Angeles and then I was like okay I want someone to write out the pilot and I just been seeing Chicago on the news a ton and I've been reading a lot of Baldwin and I was like oh well this is not a comedy it's a drama but I was like okay whatever I'll write a drama and I just outlined it and my whole house looked like the first season of True Detective and <laughs> I figured it out and I wrote it I used to be called Shy 
Rack. Obviously, I changed the name because of the Spike Lee <laughs> yeah, movie. Right. And and Justin read it. He was the first person to read it. Speaking of Justin, Justin's like you know through line. Yeah. Justin read it, and I'll never forget it. He sent me a video message saying it was the best thing I'd ever written, wow. and he was like, "You got to send this out." And my poor agent at the time, and my I'm still I was still with my same manager, and he was just like, "I don't know. This is the really weird follow up to 20s." And he's like, "I don't really know how this is going to be received and this and that." But I believed in it so much. I said, "Well, look, don't you have to do? You don't have to do a blanket, you know, submission." Mm-hmm. I said, "But send it to a couple production companies and get to see what reaction we get. And if they like it, keep sending it out. If they don't, we'll we'll circle back and talk about me doing a pass on it." I obviously didn't plan on doing the latter, so I had to really bet on myself and hope that people would like the material. And he sent it out, and it was a wrap. People just loved the script and there was a lot of excitement for it and it started moving really really fast isn't the crazy thing though if i have this right that means that you wrote the shy though before you had anything to do with master of none Uh uh-huh that's crazy because i think people maybe think oh this is the first fruit of the labor like the emmy somehow made the shy possible that's just because chronologically on paper it looks like that the way things come out yeah Yeah, no i we had like sold the shy to showtime and then i got cast on master none i said would y'all mind giving me a couple months to go to new york and do this thing and because david nevins is pretty smart he said no i don't mind that at all go shoot the show and he didn't know what it was going to be but i think he assumed it would do well so he said go be famous (laughs) and then do it and then because we we shot an original pilot they scrapped that and we shot another pilot and in between all that i got cast and the Steven Spielberg movie Ready Player One and again Nevins was like I because he hadn't officially picked up the show the right, series right, yet right. so he said I'm never going to hold you back from yeah, I don't know if I'm even though he probably did know he's going to pick right, up my right. show but he was so sweet and kind and said go do that like that's crazy like go be in the Steven Spielberg movie and so I did that and so that's why I was in London for four months and I wrote the Master of None episode in London Thanksgiving episode wow, Aziz came yeah. to London and we wrote it in three days when I had three days off from, from filming so, uh, my mind's blown here about yeah, the order so of this but, well let's let's obviously talk about Master of None. How did you and Aziz and Alan Yang first even wind up meeting? How was that facilitated? Two words, Allison Jones. Yeah. She saw the pilot presentation for 20s online and for some crazy reason she said, I don't want to, because you would think, because I was using a casting director, you would think she would go, well, let, bring in these girls who in the thing who are great and awesome, friends of mine. But instead she said, I want to meet the person behind it. Like, who was the girl that wrote this? And so I went in to sit with her, did not know who she was. Obviously, I'm very familiar with her work. Didn't even right. know I was familiar with her work. But I went and sat with her. We had a wonderful conversation. She obviously has great taste in movies and TV. And we just had a really great chat. And she asked if I was curious about being in front of the camera. And I said, obviously, I'm not. I hadn't thought about that. That's not my You've path. you never acted before, No. Right? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah. And so, and that was, wasn't my trajectory. And so she said, well, look, let me bring you in for some stuff here and there, if you don't mind. And I said, okay. I thought, you know, I'll do that for shits and giggles. And she brought me in for a few things. She actually brought me in for what would ultimately become Trainwreck. She brought me in for Veep, and I actually read with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which wow. was amazing. Those things I didn't get. But then she brought me in for a small part on one of my favorite shows in the season, second season, which was The Comeback. I loved that show, watching it when I was I was in college, watching that show when it came out, and I was one of those cult fans. Yeah. So then I got a call saying, hey, you want to go in and read for a super tiny part on The Comeback? They were trying to explain to me what it was. I said, I know exactly <laughs> what The Comeback is. I'm obsessed with it. And so then I went in and read Michael Patrick King happened to be directing that episode. He picked me from the tape and I spent a full afternoon with him and Lisa in a room and got to watch their genius at play and it was great. And then I guess Aziz and Alan called her because she was casting Master of None and they said, we don't want to do the typical casting process. They said, can you just send us interesting people for us to meet? And by the grace of God. The role of Denise who, but the thing with Denise is from what I understand, this was originally written to be kind of a, a straight friend who could potentially be a love interest of Debs, right? All they knew was they wanted a girl in the crew. 
Okay. And I think because we live in a heterosexual society, I think they assume the that girl would be yeah. straight. And yeah. then obviously, I think that would have probably led to you would have had to. I mean, it's, it's like it's like uh, Jerry, you know, <laughs> Jerry and, and Elaine. So but that's it. And I think because of when you give Allison that much slack, I think she's going to say, all right, well, Lena's a girl. You know, why not? But I was really grateful to her for thinking of me and sending me because I literally met them at Aziz's house, like went to his house, sat with him and Alan. And because I had that staff writer mentality, I just felt like a staff meeting. So I went in. I talked about myself so I just fall in love with my now my now fiance yeah. and talked about that talked about her you know me being the first girl she had been with they were fascinated <laughs> by that they were like what and I was just like I don't know I was just like being myself and then I left and then I then I got a call saying hey Aziz would like to read with you and then I because I'm also a writer I said hey can I punch up this scene and Aziz was like sure and so <laughs> I that's did that's a little risky because that can yeah. some people can get a little precious right well I, but he look they knew I was a writer right. so I was like let me punch this up and put it in my own words and so the cool thing was Aziz didn't know what I was going to say back to him so I, I cracked him up a few times right. Alan was laughing Allison was laughing and I felt like oh that went well and then I read again and next thing I knew I was testing for it and then Aziz and Alan called and offered me to part amazing so when you're doing that first season mm-hmm. you know it's Netflix right but, but you, you have you, no idea you have no because we were still that, early yeah. early days you know right. when they I mean like House of Cards was out right Orange is New Black had come out so those were like that was it those were heavy hitters and also those were hour longs and I mean, here's a great thing I trusted Aziz so much because I was such a huge fan of his work mm-hmm. on Parks and Rec his stand up obviously I was a big fan of Parks and Rec so I knew Alan was a writer on that and Michael Schur's EP and so I was like well we'll see what happens you know and but it really was a shot in the dark because again we were in New York by, there's no audience there's no litmus test it's just you know we're just doing these episodes and hoping that people will find it as funny as we did right. and when it came out I mean the reviews were just like you know you you're so shocked and surprised and amazed and blown away I mean so much so that Aziz really toyed with the idea of not doing a second season because really? he was just like I don't want to you know dare the devil when you say when it came out this is per Netflix usual all at once which mm-hmm. means that how did your like one day you just walk outside and oh, your life's yeah. different? It was completely different. I, I, it's so funny. I always joke, like, I walk into a Trader Joe's and, like, I, you know, you couldn't get two steps because it's just like, you know, it's, 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 it's hipster catnip, right. that show. So, and that was the beginning. And then and then people just sort of really took to the character. People really seemed to like Denise. I, I was really blessed. Like, I think the Hollywood Reporter, you know, did a piece about 10 people to watch and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And so, which is framed and hangs in my office. Nice. And, uh, yeah, and again, it that was no, I didn't have a, I mean, I just got a publicist a few months back. So, it really all was just super organic and, and, and people were really kind and, and it was really nice. How did writing for Master of None on top of acting in it, was that always in the plan? No. Mm-mm. I always wanted to keep it separate because yeah. I, one, I really, and I, again, I try to tell people, I didn't do any writing in season one. I definitely talked to Aziz and Alan mm-hmm. a ton. We, we spent a lot of time, you know, offset in between. So, so they got a real sense of my voice and my cadence and my personality, which they really dug. They were like, anytime I said anything, anytime I, I mean, Aziz would be like, write that down. That, da, 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 da. You know, <laughs> he really, you know, embraced that. And, and so did Alan. So did the other writers. They, they really wanted me to kind of shine through the character. But season two, and the only thing I wrote for season two was that Thanksgiving episode. So I think a lot of people assume, oh, you're writing the stuff that you say. I'm like, no, that I don't even have to so tweak hard. it. Yeah. Like Alan and Aziz know my voice pretty well. And, and if, if something doesn't feel right in my mouth, I'll tell them. But for the most part, they just they write really great stuff. And it's always funny. Before we talk about the fact that you were the first black woman to win an Emmy for comedy writing, mm-hmm. let's note that you were the first to be nominated for. Right. That's uh, crazy. So because, you know, your TV history so well and, you know, <laughs> as you said, you were paying attention to the credits and all that. Uh-huh. Can you cite some examples of black women writing for comedies 
before you who maybe in a different time would have gotten that? Oh, absolutely. Susan Fells Hill, mm-hmm. who was the showrunner of um, A Different World, mm-hmm. and Yvette Lee Bowser, who mm-hmm. was pretty much her number two on A Different World, and she then went on to create Living Single, who was the first, I believe, and you guys can fact check it, but I think she's the first African-American woman to ever have her own show on primetime television. Wow. And Yvette went on to do a bunch of, she did a show called Half and Half, and, and also For Your Love. She's had so many shows, and now she's showrunning Dear White People. This is Yvette. Yvette Bowser, yeah. And she also was involved with Blackish, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. She yeah. went on Blackish for a bit, yeah, yeah, before she went to, to work on Dear White People. And then who's, I think we talked about, right? Mara. Rock yeah, Mara Rockakill, Mara as well, who came yeah. after. Mara was, it was sort of the generation right, right after like uh, Moesha, Susan, Susan and yeah. the UPN, yeah. So for you, I was there that night at the Emmys. It was, <laughs> it was pretty. Electric. It was electric. Like people don't give out standing ovations easily. I know, right? man. That was. So, and I don't know quite that, kind. you know, like people. I think knew you from Master of None from mm-hmm. seeing you, right? But you know, as a, this is the whole industry there. Mm-hmm. Take me through from like showing up that night. What did you think the odds were? And then also just as that went down, just how you were processing what unfolded. Well, that whole weekend was crazy because I was seeing Donald a ton and I'm such a fan of his. We're genuinely friendly. That's what's so mm-hmm. crazy. But like I, I always tell him that I look up to him and. I admire the work that he does. And he's someone who I think he sets the bar always. And I want to be the princess Michael Jackson, I think, for constantly (laughs) trying to, you know, make dope stuff. But so I would see him a lot. He kept saying, like, you're going to he's like, you're going to win the writing category. You're going to win that. And I was just like, I don't know, man, because you're because he had two scripts in there. And I was like, dude, you got some really some dope stuff, man. And and also it was like everybody was talking about Atlanta. It was the first season out the gay. It was killing. And then Sterling K. Brown was like, you're going to win Cindy Shupak. Saw it, said, who I'm a big Sex and the City fanatic. And right. so she came, I went to the I'm Dying Up Here season one premiere, mm-hmm. and she came out of there and she saw me. She said, you're going to win an Emmy for the match, from the Thanksgiving episode. And I go, oh, snap. So walking in, I very much felt like the favorite. So, but the reason why that's, lovely mm-hmm. but also horrifying is because if I lose like I'm going to feel even more devastated <laughs> right, than right, I would right, originally right. if everybody and their mom had been telling right. me oh you're going to win you're going to win <laughs> so uh, so I was just I always tell people I couldn't enjoy the Emmys until after my category so that whole front half like Stephen Colbert was being really right. funny Chance right. the Rapper had a bit I couldn't enjoy it because <laughs> my support my poor fiance was like you need to take a, a Xanax or something <laughs> like you're like freaking out because I just I think there was so much pressure on me to win right. and then also I was like what am I going to say like if I get up there it was like the Halle Berry Oscar moment you I was like prep something. no well here's the thing Aziz was nervous about that Aziz was like you should write something down but I, I'm a because I, I love award shows yeah. love <laughs> I used to work in these buildings I was a PA on the award show stuff huh. for E but I don't like when people pull out a piece of paper because yeah. it's very presumptuous but Aziz was nervous about that he was like you're going to freeze up there whatever and also too because a lot of people were getting on me like oh let me take up all the speech time but the academy tells you if there's more than one winner you have to pick one pick person one. to speak. And he'd won the year before, so yeah, it made he was sense. just like, yeah, he was like Lena. Me and Alan tried to share the space. It's like right. literally too short of right. time. It's like so you take it. He's like, obviously you did the, you know, this is your story. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. So then I felt even more pressure. And what happens is they move you when the category comes up. They move, they switch your chair so that way you're not taking an hour to walk up to the stage. <laughs> so now I'm like close to the front. Like Oprah's right there. Like somebody <laughs> really famous walked by me, and right. Aziz is next to me. Aziz is like, well now I'm nervous. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, well now I'm even more nervous. And 
I think also people knew about it. It had been written about that I was the first to be nominated and I would be the first woman to win. So I think there was a little bit of a buzz in the air waiting for that for that moment. And then when they said our name, I mean, all I could hear, because they said Aziz first and then the room just erupted. I didn't even hear my own name. And I got up there and I remember the advice my fiance gave me that morning, which was she's like, do some housekeeping and then say something from your heart. And that's what I did. And I had no idea that the thing that I said would like, you know, I think it may follow me for the rest of my well, life and career. Really good. I mean, the whole, it was the superpower. Yeah, example, the things right? that make us different. Those are our superpowers. Yeah. But I think that's how I genuinely feel. Like I always tell people this and I really believe it to be true. If I was not an out and proud gay black woman because it takes an out and proud gay black woman to write an episode like Thanksgiving and to do it with, I think, the grace in which I tried to write it mm-hmm. and for the industry to embrace it and just and also the world. You know, I think people really I hear from people all over the world who love that episode and see themselves in it. People who aren't even gay right. or people of color. And I think that because I was so unafraid to put my my story, my soul, my spirit, my family story on the page and put it up there. I think people really, really appreciated that and, and respected it. And so the love in that room was really genuine. And, and what I was, everything I was saying felt really genuine. And I, and I think I really did want to really shout out me and Aziz's journey. I mean, he is an Indian boy from, from South Carolina and I'm a little black girl from the South side of Chicago. And we both, you know, came up with a dream and we have so much stuff in common, which is so crazy. You would never think that the two of us would be as connected as we are, but I'm just really grateful for that opportunity. I'm, I'm grateful to God for ordering my steps in such a way that I would be standing there. And and I'll, again, I mean, it's just you can't make this stuff up. You can't write it to be as obsessed with TV as I have been. And then to not only win an Emmy, but to be the first black woman to be nominated in that category and then to take home the trophy. It, that was just all icing on the cake. It, it, it was really a wonderful night. And this is the moment I'll never forget. And and then when I got off stage, hearing about the impact of the speech was was like I was sort of bowled over by that because I didn't. I didn't think the speech would make that big of a wave, but I think you were trending immediately, probably. I, so <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. It was nuts. Well, so having established that the Emmy had nothing to do with really paving the way for the shy, mm-hmm. now the shy finally, after you know, again, 2014, you're right. At 2015, has the sort of first false start. Mm-hmm. Now it comes back. Yep. All this whole drama of just getting to. Do it. Yeah. Why did you want to bring that particular show into the world? Why, you know, as somebody who's always gravitated towards comedy, Mm -hmm. what was important enough about that story that made you say, you know what, I'm going to do a drama. Let's see if I can do it. You know, it's interesting. It wasn't even about the genre. It was about me wanting to tell the stories of these young black men in Chicago that I felt like I knew and that I grew up with. Because it's true. It was really weird. On my block, there was a lot of kids, but me and my sister were the only girls. So I I grew up with these young black boys who some of them I saw take a a path the wrong way. Some of them I saw take a path the right way. Some took straight up the middle. Like I literally would see how their lives would be changed by circumstance, by decisions they made, by, you know, getting a girl pregnant and how that would affect the rest of their lives and I just I knew them so intimately and so and it was just so personal to me so when I was seeing these news stories pop up about black boys killing each other you know because that's the thing it wasn't really about police brutality for me it was more about why are we killing each other because the truth is if Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin killed each other we wouldn't know their names Uh 
we just wouldn't. And so for me, I really wanted to get to the crux of that. Like what is happening in a city where, you know, people only feel powerful if they have a gun in their hand or what's happening when, you know, there's also a person just trying to get through the day and what happens when gun violence affects their lives and what it looks like. And and I think to me, it's like I just been reading a ton of Baldwin, a lot of Hughes, and I just was really sort of infatuated with their prose and the way they wrote about us and the way they would not be afraid to tell our ugly truth but make it look beautiful and that's what I really wanted to do I've always been a person that never bought into the thing of oh if we're going to have black people on TV we should show them in a positive light I think that's just as dangerous as showing them only in a negative light Mm -hmm. it's all propaganda Mm -hmm. it's like how accurate can I make these characters how authentic can I make them feel and that's what I I was really going for so I think even people got the show it's like I think there was a natural desire to compare to The Wire but I was like yeah but I don't care about the system I don't care about the cops those stories those beats always make my brain hurt I always care about the emotion I always care about the little moments. I always care about the things that may make me laugh or make us smile or make us scared. And I think those are the moments that people really connected to with the show. So it wasn't this desire, oh, I'm going to write a drama. It's just, oh, the story I want to tell needs to be told in this format. So I'm going to give it a shot. And you've written, as we've established, again, a lot for TV as a staff writer on the Nick show. Mm-hmm. On, I was a staff writer on Bones and then on I Bones. got my own show, yeah. Right. The third show I ever wrote on was my own. Because The Shy, here, it's kind of the first time that you've had to and in, and had the opportunity to create a whole world of your own. Yeah. So what was the thing that most surprised you or, or you found most interesting about that? I wondered if you were, when you've got all, especially in an ensemble show like this where there's so many different storylines, I can't imagine doing it without mapping it out and outlining it and all that. All oh, that. Yeah. So take me through just how do you know who your world's going to be filled with and how you're going to like? Do you know at the beginning where everybody's going to end up at the end of the season? All well, that? well, not the end of the season, but mm-hmm. I was really focusing on the pilot, but. For right. me, I started with the characters. That's where it always begins. And I named them after a lot of the you know, the boys that I grew up with. One of them is Brandon. I grew up with a kid named Coogie. Because <laughs> that's really where it began right. for me. It was people talking about black boys in Chicago. And I was like, but I grew up with black boys right. in Chicago. I know what they're, what, who they are. I know what they're like. And so I did that. And then obviously I took the name Emmett. Who people know the, mm-hmm. the, the story of Emmett Till mm-hmm. and how it's such a, a very well-known story in Chicago. Obviously because he was from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then Ronnie is my uncle's name. My yeah. mom's brother's name. So that's really where it began. I really want to give these characters names of people I know and I care about and I love not to always protect them but just to make them real and human and really honest and that the big thing I mapped out was where they would cross and I knew somebody I knew someone wouldn't survive the pilot I think I didn't realize it was Kugi until midway through just because he was so full of life mm-hmm. and so and also I wanted people to feel like a Chicagoan to be hanging out and vibing with somebody next thing you know they're gone anyway, yeah. yeah and so and Brandon was very much like me it's like if you replace cooking with writing you know he's the male version of me and his you know he's dating a girl from the right side of the tracks not unlike I you know I did and I just really wanted these characters I wanted also to show this thing of how the person you may need the most who you haven't even met yet which is my journey from Brandon to Kevin mm-hmm. in that you know Kevin ends up being the person he needs not just to help identify who killed his brother but Kevin becomes a bit of a surrogate little brother to him as well and there's something really beautiful and powerful still to me that I can't even believe I wrote this is that he gets on Coogie's bike you know and rolls with, with Brandon at the end and so there's a lot in that pilot it's, it's jam-packed but it's full of of people I know and stories I know and Ethel is loosely based on my grandmother and Ethel is my mom's actual first name. She goes by Laverne, but her name is Ethel Laverne Hall. So that's why I named the grandmother Ethel who you meet later. And did you 
sort of oversee the whole casting of this, I assume, because this is unbelievable. We know, you know, just to, if somebody hasn't seen it yet, we can say that mm-hmm. they know Jason Mitchell from Straight uh, Out of Compton. Out of Compton. Mm-hmm. We had him in here doing He's the podcast. So great. He's great. Alex Hibbert, they Moonlight. may recognize from Moonlight. Sonia Song was in there. Who yeah. Has oh, my mom's well, yeah. middle name, Laverne. Yeah. Yeah. And she's so great. And then there's these people who, I had never seen before, but I'm blown away by it. I think it's Antari, and I'm Mitari, not even going to yeah. try You the... may have seen him. Did you watch The Nick at all? He had a small part on The Nick. Uh, okay, okay. He doesn't okay. look anything like he did here, there. But yeah, and then yeah. I saw him. I watched him on the Wendy Williams show, and I didn't even realize it was the same guy. Like, his whole physicality oh, yeah, was different. I know. Different like, he's and, more of a method. Yeah. You know, he definitely is not Ronnie at all. Yeah. I mean, he's very distinguished and, like, you know. It's amazing. But yeah. you, like, you seem to have a, a great knack for finding well Carmen Cuba time. you know was, was our casting director okay. and she yeah it was a godsend you know she was always called her sort of like my bit of a co-writer I feel mm-hmm. because the way she helped cast it really helped me to form the ways in which I look at the characters a little differently and and obviously you know approach that differently when we were working on the first season so you guys shot all of it in Chicago oh yeah absolutely a lot of locals. Oh, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. A ton. Soundtrack featuring a lot of a Chicago, lot of Chicago artists, artists, including one who's on your hat right now. Yes. Chance. Chance, my guy. He gives yeah. you discounts. <laughs> what was the most gratifying part of basically essentially going home and telling a story that, I mean, I guess somebody else could have tried to right. tell the Chicago story, but it wouldn't have had the same authenticity, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing was uh, more so, I think, once it came out in Chicago, one's got a chance to see it, and they would t- tweet and say, yo, okay, this is solid. This is us. You yeah. know, there's a couple of things that, like, you can use a little more Chicago slang or shoot more <laughs> on the South Side, which we're going to rectify in season two. But I really wanted to hear from them, you know, and wanted to make sure they felt like I was doing right by them. And, and I just want to continue to root it more in the city and make it feel authentic and tell stories that, you know, we need to tell. But that's what was the most gratifying thing was hearing from Chicagoans on Twitter or in person say how much they love it and then I'll be in New York and people shout the shy at me all the time which is also crazy (laughs) well the last three things here just big Mm -hmm. picture you're in an interesting position to have a have a perspective on this like what is the state of race relations in Hollywood right now we have people are very divided on the other hand I don't know that a show like yours with you in charge of it mm-hmm. would have happened just a few years ago. Right. As crazy as that is, because it should have. But overall, what's the what's the sort of state of the union, if that's a fair question? To ask? No, it's definitely a fair question. I mean, I think, look, I don't know if it's, it's definitely not a bad time to be a black writer in Hollywood because black stuff is popping right now. <laughs> but I think the difference is, is that it's not just because it's black. I think there's a, a definitely a renaissance happening because there are phenomenal black artists making work, whether it be Donald Glover, Jordan Peele, Justin Simeon, Michaela, who, you know, who had um, Chewing Gum, which I don't think is coming back, which is, is sad. But I mean, this is work that is really phenomenal. I and mean, obviously Ryan Coogler with Black mm-hmm. Panther and, and Barry Jenkins with Moonlight. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of black art that they that Hollywood can't go do paint by numbers with they can't duplicate it you hear it i'm sure in pitch meetings all the time like oh well this is sort of a little bit like atlanta or this is a sort of in the vein of black panther or you know all that kind of stuff and so because these sort of examples that people want to use as success happen to be black you know movies or tv shows so that's a really cool thing which is hilarious if you you probably get a white writer here there like like, you know like yeah it's sort of like you know atlanta (laughs) set in connecticut you know what i mean so i think to me that's like really 
exciting is yeah. that you know but also the great thing is they because execs now have to roll up their sleeves and go say okay i can't just go get a black writer to do this like i gotta go find somebody who's as good as donald or is as good as jordan or whatever and so i think that's exciting is that they have to look at the writer they have to look at the creator because that's really king or queen not just the content and, you, and just on the flip side i saw a quote where you said quote the hardest thing about being a black writer in this town and this is i think recently even is having to pitch your black story to white execs mm-hmm. also most of the time when we go into rooms to pitch there's one token black executive that sometimes can be a friend and sometimes can be a foe close quote so mm-hmm. i mean even with some degree of progress you think the executive suites is where the most growth is still needed. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why a big thing for me, what I would love if we could go into some of these, you know, colleges as people are graduating and say, I want to go to Hollywood. I want to say, yeah, but you don't always have to be in front of the camera. Right. The sucky part is everybody wants to be a right. star. Right. And I'm just like, but you make more money as an exec and it's, right. you know, less work. I think. Right. Uh, but I think to me, we just need more people of color in those in those boardrooms. We need more people of color running studios and with green lighting, you know, ability because I do find it to be a little frustrating because the stories I love that I want to produce that I want to write are super black and super layered and that's what we're still having to come in and hope that a white exec can kind of understand what we're going for or, or kind of get what story we're telling. But look, things are pushing through because the fact that Atlanta is, is is doing what it's doing, I mean, but the tough thing is but you got Donald at the head of it who was a name brand or even Master of None, you got Aziz Ansari at the head of it who's a name brand. But that's why I think for me, as, as I try to become a, a brand or whatever, what have you, I want to help introduce the industry to more fresh voices where if I can be an EP on it, then right. great. Well, that's where number two of three is because mm-hmm. I saw let's just list some of the things that I believe you're now doing to advance that item on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Co-chair of the Committee of Black Writers at the Writers Guild of America. Mm -hmm. Something that maybe I'll leave to you to kind of explain how it works, but with the Blacklist, Franklin Leonard's group that identifies the best unproduced scripts. And then also, again, I'm not totally sure how this works, but I heard you have over 100 mentees. So how do those things work? Well, the Committee of Black Writers is a subcommittee of the Writers Guild where they encourage groups who are similar to come together and and talk about how the guild can be helpful to them. And I'm honored to be a co-chair of that committee where we meet every other month and we talk about things that, you know, affect us as as guild members and what the guild can be doing to help. And and not just, you know, as a a personal level, I just want to reach out to them and know who they are and hear from them see how I can be helpful. And that leads me to the blacklist. Well, one, I think the site is super helpful because whether you live in Los Angeles or not, it's a way to get professional feedback on your material. And a lot of these sites and contests, I just don't trust because you don't know who's reading your material. The cool thing about, yeah, the cool thing about Franklin is that he doesn't have a reader in his camp that hasn't been a professional reader at a studio or a network for at least a number of years. And so if a person, I I went online and said, if you get an eight or above on the blacklist site, overall rating of an eight or above, that usually means you have a pretty solid script and you can send it to me and I was like and my team because I now have a I partner with Sight Unseen where they've given me a development fund where I can help you know pay writers to develop their material and we take it out but a big thing for me is I want to read these scripts and maybe one of these scripts may be something we want to develop and if it's not what I've you know tasked my exec with who will be making an announcement soon once he starts is to to have him read a script and go hey this isn't right for Lena but I know an exec across town who I think could use this material so it's really about helping 
these scripts get to the industry because yeah. not everybody's downloading them or reading them every weekend. So it's sort of my way of sort of helping yeah. Franklin get the word out. And then last but not least in terms of mentees, I think people think like, oh my gosh, she has all these mentees. How do you, you know, mm-hmm. but here's the truth. I don't have to sit with them every day or talk to them every day. A big thing I try to do is help them help each other. So my, I have two assistants. One is Raquel, my main assistant. The second mm-hmm. assistant is Kendra. And they and they they both DM'd me on Instagram and saying, wow. hey, I want to help, whatever. And so I started having them, because people would send me scripts all the time that I don't have time to read. And a great way for me to know if someone's reliable is, hey, can you read the script by this time yeah. and give me just a, like what it's about, yeah. how many pages, what the strengths are, what the weaknesses are, and whether you pass or recommend. And if they can do that and do that well, and that tells me something about you. And if I, you know, and then what happens is, and then that person who sent me that script now has feedback on the material. Yeah, it may not be for me, but you're getting feedback from someone who is well-written and has a good, who has a good opinions yeah. and things like that. And so what I really do with my mentees is I put them in writers groups and they have to meet once a week and, or, I'll, or some of them I'll help pay for them to go to writing classes, yeah. you know, and they, they update me and things like that. And so, and they also have a Facebook group where they talk, they, Hey, hey there's this place is hiring or this place. So half times I don't even interface with them that much, but they reach out to me. I send them to Raquel. We have sort of a, sort of a, a starter packet about what you'll be doing. And it's, it's great. And so then what will happen is as, as Raquel and Kendra move up, they're tasked with learning from the mentees who's really strong, who's mm-hmm. really great, who's really reliable, who's fast about what they're certain things, and they can eventually become my new assistant and things like that. So that's, that's how awesome. we work it. Well, the last one is is this. I just want to read to you a list of things that have happened in the last calendar year, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to have you react. Okay. Not even a year since what we mentioned, September, first black woman to win an Emmy for comedy writing for mm-hmm. Master of None, more recently appeared in Steven Spielberg's latest movie. Mm-hmm had your own show for the first time go on Showtime, The Shy, of course, Mm -hmm. had your other pilot that had been neglected by people for a while, 20s, picked up by TBS, picked for the first cover subject of the new Radhika overseeing Vanity Fair. And now in the last week, congratulations, you are one of the 100 most influential people in the world, according to Time Magazine. Yeah, I'm flying out to New York tonight for the gala. Amazing. So just like (laughs) if I told you a year ago, that this was what would happen in the next year, what would you have said to me? I would say, you know what? I'm not surprised. I think because, one, I have a firm belief in God and and, and that everybody's journey is, is exactly the way it's supposed to be and look the way, exactly the way it's supposed to look. And so I never want to be shocked by anything that happens, I think. But I definitely can be grateful and feel humbled by all of it. And I think the biggest thing for me is just to keep my feet on the ground because it's funny because Donald hit me and said, how you, you know, how, how's everything feeling over there? <laughs> and I said, well, look, you know, there'll be another movie. Some other movie will be number one, you know, next week. There'll be another person on the cover of Vanity Fair next month. And so what I just try to do is enjoy the moments while they last and then just keep creating new moments and keep making cool stuff. Because I wrote it because that's so funny. It's like people see me now, but they have no idea what I have in store. Like I'm still fighting to get 20s green with the series like you know we're gonna shoot that thing in july we're gonna make that and try to make a really great pilot and hope we get a series order because i think that show is a whole nother level of my voice and i can't wait people to be exposed to that i also wrote a feature that i really? want to shoot this fall that i want that melina masukas is attached to direct and wow. i think it's going to be our leading man and so we want to shoot that this fall and release that next year so which is a whole other 
piece of my voice that people haven't seen yet. You know, so I think, and I pop up in season two of Dear White People as just sort of a funny character, which will be out May 4th. So I think to me, I still feel like it's the tip of the iceberg, which is really exciting. I always want to feel like that. And so that's what I love so much about this business is that, that there's many things I can do. And also, I, I just want to keep producing other people's material. You know, I really believe in writers and, and voices and, and stories that haven't been told before. And I love being able to sit next to a fresh voice and say, I believe in this person. You should pick up their show and, and get, get in that crack. And because that to me, I think is, is going to be my legacy in the long run. That's amazing. Well, thank you. And congratulations. What an amazing story. Thanks for that list, man. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, how good things are going. Well, keep it up. I will. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.